In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Teresa Gurren of Fort Worth, Texas. Teresa will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Charlie Pierce. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at The Mothership Law and Order, Season 6, Episode 21, Pro Se. His first trial, and he knows just enough law to turn it into a circus. A circus. Three counts of murder. He's taking it seriously. Then why doesn't he plead insanity? Because he's insane. Joining me to do that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcasts, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for inviting me on the program, Kevin. (laughs) Well, like I say, I I don't have a lot of people to choose from. (laughs) But we are very, very pleased after browbeating him publicly on social media, <laughs> we were able to twist the arm of our special guest, author and magazine writer, Charlie Pierce. Hello, Charlie. Hi, guys. How's everybody? We're doing great. I can't believe you're here on our stupid podcast. It's so great. So some folks might know Charlie from uh, his appearances on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but you've written for GQ, Sports Illustrated Slate. You're currently the political blogger for Esquire. Ooh. And on the 25th anniversary of Law & Order, you wrote an article for the website Grantland, Oh, right. And that tells me that nobody else wanted to print it. <laughs> Grantland is great. What are you talking well, I was about? Working for, I was working for Grantland then. <laughs> oh, you were? Well, they don't, okay, well, then I take it back. They obviously <laughs> wanted to print it. But you called Law & Order your hotel show. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, if you travel a lot, which I do for my job, uh, basically what you do when you get into a hotel room is you don't want to watch a Kurosawa festival on the TV. What you want is comfort food, TV comfort food. And every now and then you get a show. And it happened that, you know, this was during the era when there were rerun, Law and Order was rerun everywhere. Uh, It was like, you know, it's a wonderful life before NBC bought it. (laughs) Uh, And I get there and throw my bags in the corner, flip on, uh, was it A&E? I think it started on TNT for sure. And there it would be. And I'd be in the, uh, the, you know, the old two seven. Cracking wise with Lenny. <laughs> I'd order my, you know, Marriott cheeseburger and I'd be a happy guy. <laughs> yeah, it's in whatever town you're in, uh, there's always a law and order. There's on. like seven channels where it's on all the time. Yeah. yeah. Now, I will apologize, Charlie, for shaming you on Twitter to get you to come on. <laughs> but this listicle it. article that you did write, 
it has been the inspiration for our show for a lot of the episodes that we have chosen. And I re- I'll put the link in the show notes, but you have things like the best scene, the best episode, the best judge, the best guest defendant and pro se is on that list. But for best regular extra, you only list one character, and that's Rogers, the medical examiner. Charlie Pierce, defend your snub of Profacci. Oh, <laughs> Profacci. Well, Profacci turns out to be a dirty cop. Yeah. Well, the, that doesn't the, solve uh, anything. So I had to leave the Profacci out. But I, Hendrix is just so dry. And at the same time, apparently she's got this very Baroque sex life. She's always doing salsa <laughs> dancing or dating a 23-year-old. But what won it for me is the line I quote in the piece for Grantland about uh, she's telling Lenny that uh, that that she had a guy come in with a javelin through his chest. Right now, I got to get a javelin out of somebody's chest. All right. What made you go into this line of work? Free javelins. She says free javelins. <laughs> Man, Olivette could learn something from her. She's kind of humorless, huh? Uh, <laughs> hey, Charlie, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Oh, uh, Logan and Briscoe. Classic choice. Easily. Yep. I don't like SUV. I don't like SUV that much. Although it's nice to see that like Don Cragen was still on the force. <laughs> he looks younger. I didn't watch Criminal Intent, so I, I mean, I heard Vincent D'Onofrio is really good, but. Then I watched a little bit of it one time, and they had the love interest from the second Mighty Ducks movie on there, and I didn't quite see where she came <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, and, and I was fascinated for a while with uh, Law, Law & Order UK, where they repurposed the old Law & Order episodes, except put them in London. Yeah. Without guns. And I started to think, you know, what would, what would it be like if, like, you know, Jack or, or, or Ben Stone had to wear a wig? <laughs> Michael Moriarty in a white wig would have been great. Charlie, who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. That will Jack McCoy as as first chair for sure. And my Twitter pal and the sexiest business suit woman in the history of television, Jill Hennessy. Yeah. Mm. And she's my Twitter friend too, but Yeah. I mean but you know, that's not, not her what, twin. Yeah, it could be her twin sister. We wouldn't know who was actually doing that. All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode Law and Order Season 6, Episode 21, Pro Se. Well, here's the advantage of picking up the office lunch order. You might come back and find everyone you work with was murdered. <laughs> Three dead, one severely wounded, all slashed with a long blade. Got the cashier there, customer there under the rack. CSU ID her as Linda Bowers, according to her wallet. Worked in a bakery on Green. And Irving Marks owns the joint, opened less than a year ago. Rough business. The New York cops do what they do best. Interrogate a black teenager who had nothing to do with the crime. <laughs> but he and his friend provide a description of a twitchy, dirty, long-haired crackhead who'd been seen outside the store. Briscoe and Curtis learned the man had been stalking one of the dead customers. The patrolman who responded to the complaint did the other thing that New York cops are best at, kicking a homeless guy in the ass and dumping him in Central Park. The suspect <laughs> stole a bayonet from a street merchant, and the homeless shelter points the detectives to a clinic where the guy gets his medicine. The clerk identified him as James Smith, but he has not been in to pick up his antipsychotic medication for a long time. On a hunch, they check the public library, and because reading is fundamental, they find Smith browsing through books. After a chase through the shelves, 
and over a recently waxed floor, Curtis takes Smith down and into custody. But when questioning him, it's clear he's delusional and paranoid. You know, Richard Belzer. <laughs> Van Buren says their murderer had a previous arrest for stalking and was let off with just a fine. Well, who gave this slap on the wrist? Why, it was you, ADA Claire Kincaid. Well, guys, I feel it's too bad that this vintage clothing store did not continue on. They could have had a great sale. We're slashing everything. Oh, God. <laughs> you can laugh because they weren't real people, Rebecca. They were fictional murder victims. Fictional murder victims. I was wondering, though, I did think maybe they raided Lenny Briscoe's wardrobe from the closet from the costume department to, like, fill out that vintage shop. Vintage clothing. I wonder if anybody actually makes a living selling this stuff. Apparently not. I think I see one of my old bowling shirts. I did. I, I have several Hawaiian shirts I borrowed from from Lenny's closet. Yes. <laughs> There's this varsity jacket that leads Briscoe and Curtis to a high school. And the principal ironically says, oh, yeah, black male plays basketball. Tall black teenager. It figures he's a criminal and uh, he plays basketball. Well, we'll check out your chess team next. Yeah. Well, I think it's the writers acknowledging, yeah, we agree this is some low voltage racism, but we got to get the story going. You think? I just. <laughs> I mean, I what I was amazed by was that the cops were able to identify which high school it was based on the three-letter jacket. Do you know how many high schools there are in New York? There's like hundreds and hundreds of high schools. In They're New York. really good at that. There's a couple of episodes where they have to identify a, a letterman's jacket, and they do it. Yeah. They're very good at finding out. They, they that must be part of what you learn at the academy. You learn how to identify different <laughs> yeah. letterman jackets. Yeah, guns, fingerprints. Letterman jackets, was just in, in case. Was anyone besides me? I was very impressed that a trade school had a championship team. <laughs> yeah, the trade school had a championship basketball team. Good impressive. for those guys. Yeah. yeah. They accuse Jerome, uh, who's that student there, of being capable of triple murders because he gets rough on the basketball court. You know, we also heard you're a regular Dennis Rodman on the court. Bad temper the whole act. Oh, man, it's just bumping uglies, man. That's part of the game. I ain't kill anybody. Right, and right. he says, hey, man, that's just bumping uglies. Never heard that used that way before. I said, that's not what bumping uglies means. <laughs> if you saw someone doing bumping uglies on a basketball court, they'd call in the cops. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Bringing the donkey. I don't know what would be next. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually one of the coaches. Well, never mind. I... Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> That's SVU for certain, yes. Look, Smith had become infatuated with Linda because of her job. Her job was to frost cakes in the window of a bakery. She works in the window. Is this New Amsterdam or Old Amsterdam? <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, I've actually, I'm more concerned about the fact that there's a guy selling bayonets from a table on the sidewalk. <laughs> where the hell did that come from? Tried to buy it with soup kitchen vouchers. From where? Look like St. Ives. I turn around, bing, the blade is gone. When salesman dumbass turns his back and the homeless guy steals the bayonet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not steal one of the watches like everybody else? Exactly. Why not hang the bayonet up behind the table where, where the crazy guy can't find it? I have it on the table at all. The freaking bayonet. <laughs> You can't slip slip that into your pocket. That was long. That was like what? a two foot long letter opener. That yeah. Uh, yeah, they do bring in a sketch artist for each of the. Uh, you know, they ask each of the witnesses, "What does he look like?" Not quite twins, but they're related. A good thing he only looks like every other bum on the street. Well, they hold up the sketches like, "Oh, well, very close." Like, yeah, it's the same sketch artist. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, it's I... like, well, I don't know. It's 
How about this? Is it, you know, the hair like this? I just did one. <laughs> I thought they said we're bringing in two different sketch artists. Why, why do they need two sketch artists? How that's, many sketch artists do they need? That's an excellent question. How do they even know two sketch artists? <laughs> why do I think that this hauling in the, the two unjustly like accused black youth was jumping on Anita Van Buren's last nerve? Yeah, agreed. I mean, if they had pushed it like another five seconds, she might have like, you know, ventilated the two of them. <laughs> hey, let's take a look at our cast. We have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Uh, Charlie, who is our defendant, James Smith? Do you hear those chariots? They stole them from me. They, they want me to sleep. <laughs> they like that. The actor is the great New York stage actor, Dennis O'Hare who I think is the the greatest multi-Law & Order episode villain we have because he almost always gets acquitted. Mm. Yes. This is the only episode where he gets, he winds up in prison as the local uh, guy who beats up the, the homeless crack addict, he gets off. As the head of the, the uh, suburban militia, he gets off. As the gun-toting, drug-dealing, killing priest, he gets off. This is the only episode in which Dennis O'Hare actually goes to prison. Hmm. Yeah, he said six lawn or universe appearances three times as a priest. Uh, he said one very memorable time as a militia leader and future capital insurrectionist. Uh, his body count is six with a one attempted murder. That's a pretty good average for law and order. He was also stabbed, put in a coma. Logan did not punch him on the courthouse steps, but he did convince uh, Logan to retire from the NYPD and leave criminal intent. And thus, we've never seen Mike Logan on any of the shows again. Well, he, wound, he, wound up, like, he wound up dating, uh, what's her name? On oh, Sex Carrie Bradshaw, City. yeah. Yeah, Mr. Big. Yeah. So Dennis O'Hare, you know him from the TV anthology series American Horror Story and as the scene-stealing vampire king, Russell Edgerton on... True Blood, he got beat up by Alpha Vampire and recently unemployed actor Chris Maloney. Yep. He has three Emmy nominations, two for American Horror Story. And I'm sorry, Susan Lucci, but this is a travesty that he was not nominated for this guest appearance. I agree. I think he's great in this role. I mean, I, even just the, physic, the physicality of his transformation, did you notice that not only does he clean up, like... His, the way he whole, like moves his whole body completely changes when we see him go from like being unmedicated to medicated. Yeah. It's incredibly convincing, at least to me. No, he was not nominated, but uh, that year, the Outstanding Guest Actor Emmy went to Peter Boyle oh. uh, for the X-Files episode. I can live with that. Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. I can live with that. TV Guide called the 10th best episode of television history. But to complete this rabbit hole, the other oh. nominees for guest appearance were Danny Glover, hmm. Richard Pryor, Rip Torn, and Michael Jeter. Michael Jeter is best known as Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle, on <laughs> Elmo's World. <laughs> Somehow he got he got beat out by Mr. Noodle. Huh. Interesting. What did Richard Pryor get nominated for? Chicago Hope. Really? Yeah. And uh, actually, three of those nominations were for guest appearance on, on, on Chicago Hope. Yeah. I actually, you know, we talked about, we've been talking about Dennis O'Hare's. I like Dennis O'Hare's first appearance as the guy who beats the homeless crack addict with the rebar because he gets one second away from punching Mike uh, Ben Stone. Yeah. And he says, don't you th don't think I haven't thought about it? I feel like Dick Wolf might have been the one writing that line yeah. when, when he got to say it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we do have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. 
Can you tell us who's playing James' sister, Patricia? Jimmy minored in theology, so we studied the Bible. When he first became schizophrenic, he used to accuse his girlfriend of putting needles in his brain. That's the enormously gifted actress, Anne Dowd, who people know now from The Handmaid's Tale, but who also appeared in a couple of different episodes. She always looks like she's crying. She <laughs> always looks like she's crying. <laughs> Three Emmy nominations and one win is Aunt Lydia from The Handmaid's Tale, Rebecca Blessed Be the Fruit. Yes. Uh, nine Law & Order Universe appearances. She was the pediatric cancer specialist who was convicted because they found a dead squirrel in her trash. That's right. <laughs> God damn it. So, Charlie, true story. My grandmother's maiden name is Dowd, and I found out later that Ann Dowd was also born in my hometown, Holyoke, Massachusetts. Ah. And I started wondering for about 20 minutes. If she was really your Aunt If Lydia. she was really. <laughs> and I found out from my mother, no, that was, you know, the other Dowds, the one that had the insurance company and had all the money and not, you know, the the plebes that, that my family <laughs> were. But for for about half an hour, I thought Aunt Lydia was literally, literally my aunt. Yeah, I thought so, too. I was very disappointed. I was like, we now can, like, like celebrate our vows again. And invite Ann Dowd to that wedding. Oh, <laughs> blessed be the fruit, may it open. <laughs> All right, I got another question here. Did anybody recognize the cop who was playing Officer Hack? He was the patrolman who pushed Smith off the streets, the guy with the blonde hair. Anyone see him? The guy who was too old to be a patrolman, that yeah, one? Yeah. <laughs> I did not recognize him. We uh, relocated him, you know, like they do with bears. We dropped him in the park, gave him a little kick in the ass, you know, to send a message. That actor's name is Bill Hogue. Eight franchise appearances. He would later play Piper's father on Orange is the New Black. Hmm. Uh, by the way, Bill, as I, I'll just call him Bill, he went to Woodstock. He yeah. was at Woodstock. Charlie, were you at Woodstock? I was not at Woodstock, no. I was uh, 16 at the time, and my, my parents weren't cool with me sleeping in a field uh, and taking out Yes. Not necessarily in that order. Not in that order. Well, look, uh, Bill did not go to see The Who or, or Jimi Hendrix. He was the only one there excited about Sha Na Na. Really? No, I can't really back that up. No. <laughs> I have an old, I had an old sports writing buddy who went there and had actually had tickets and didn't want to go in the crowd, so he stayed. He stayed. He found a motel room and watched baseball all weekend. <laughs> he saved his untorn tickets and sold them for like a lot of dough on eBay. Wow. wow. Because you know they gave up selling tickets after you know about six hours on the first day. So if you had untorn tickets, which by the way, were like 10 bucks. So do you know the actress who was playing high school student and eyewitness Leanna Rogers? I know who you ought to be looking for. This raggedy old crackhead. He was outside when we were thrown out. He was rocking like they do when they're high. Look, that actress's name is Nicole Rochelle. As a kid, she was on... Shiny Time Station and the Babysitter's Club, and she was Rudy's best buddy on The Cosby Show. Really? Oh. Wow, that's a good role. That's a good role as long as you stay away from Dr. Huxtable. Exactly. Wow, how about this? In 2018, Nicole was arrested for jumping the barrier at the Bill Cosby trial. Yeah. She was topless, and she had the names of his victims written all over her body. She's my hero. Okay. Love uh, well, wow. okay. I love everything about that. Everything about it? Yeah. Uh, that, that'll jumpstart your career. That, that gets attention. Look, she belongs to a group called Femin, or Femin, or anyway. It's an organization that um, they organize topless protests. 
And no matter how hard I try, I can't get them to protest my studio. <laughs> I thought the, I thought the, I thought the, I thought the feminine were the uh, the soldiers in Dune. <laughs> Could be. That's the Fremen. Oh, the Fremen. <laughs> right, okay. Deep cut, guys. Deep cut. Listen, we're nerds, man. We're nerds. <laughs> There's a new movie adaptation coming out. Dune is like. I'm so excited. Incredibly miscast Timothy Chalamet as Paul Mwadib. Well, uh, do you think Sting will appear in his uh, Sting in his cod piece? In his cod piece, yeah. No. Sting will not, be, will not be doing a reprisal of his metal his metal diaper. <laughs> Jeez. Leslie, who's the guy playing Mikey, the detective in the beginning of the episode? Mikey. I don't know. Your basic violent misanthrope gone berserk with some kind of sword. Sword? I mean like Zorro. His deep stab wounds, wild slash and gash. That guy's name is Brian DeLate. He was in Rebecca's favorite movie, movie of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh-huh. He was the guard who asked Andy how to set up a trust fund for his children's education. <laughs> and I got to say, it was still better advice than I got from H&R Block. <laughs> <laughs> so we learned that James Smith was able to obtain free antipsychotic medication by showing his library card. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> a library card. Was anybody besides me thinking when they went to the New York Public Library, they were like the Ghostbusters for a second? Like oh, they were yeah. Turn the corner and that like green globby guy was going to be like floating there. He's it- right over there. It's Slimer. <laughs> it's in the stack since we opened. You'll find him under ancient history on the left. Okay, thanks. We'll take it from here. I'll take this set. If I recall correctly, it was like a satellite library. It wasn't the big main library right it was it was the soho branch yes books were all on metal racks that turn around yeah yeah that isn't like a real library he throws one at ray curtis i think he was hanging out in the ancient history section mm-hmm. <laughs> and charlie even uh, a psychotic guy knows that briscoe can't read the dewey decimal system <laughs> and it totally gave him away <laughs> hey how you doing Can I ask why the floors are so slippery there? Yeah, that was really something. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't understand where. Maybe they bought. Maybe they got new shoes. Yeah, I had to wonder that that was not intentional, right? Like I was just thinking that he, that actor, was running and slid. Like they didn't say, "Okay, go in and slide down that." They couldn't have. You can't plan that, right? No, you come to the set and you start to run and you realize you're about to twist your ankle. So, (laughs) I mean, Jerry Orbach could have planned it because he's a great dancer. Yes, Jerry Orbach was not going to be chasing anybody, Charlie. Right? (laughs) He's like, "I'll hang out here, Ray. You get him." There's a couple of episodes where he tries and just gives up. James Smith, you're under arrest for assault. That's why he's that's why he's the senior detective. Yeah. So you go get that guy. Uh, so they bring Smith in, and so he's got a wool cap, this green army jacket. He looks like he's Charlie Pierce. Uh, <laughs> he's got long hair and a beard, right? And they put him in a lineup with six other dirty guys with long hair and green jackets. <laughs> so did they go out and find five? Homeless guys wearing green jackets. Okay, you come on in. And like five guys who could also be the murder suspect. Or do they have an amazing wardrobe department at the police station? (laughs) What do you think, Charlie? Well, it's New York City. I mean, they could probably round, they could probably round up enough people to to make out the lineup in about 11 seconds. Yeah, they they look all over Manhattan for this guy, but invite the first five guys that walk by the, uh, you know, where they're filming. So, Charlie, if someone said, hey, could you go get that green jacket and come stand in a lineup? Would you be like, absolutely? <laughs> oh, no question. Are you kidding? One of my one of my great goals in my life was to be the dead guy. Oh, yeah. 
in an episode. Well, that could still happen. <laughs> Some nah, I can't have the SUV. That means I'd like have to have gotten raped by a priest or something. And I, you know, yeah. I just I think SUV is creepy. I think SUV is very yeah. creepy. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Agreed. We actually had an actor on the show who played a body on SVU, and she described it as having to stay quote very still. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the one of the prerequisites. <laughs> Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. At arraignment, Smith asks Claire for the same deal he got last time. So now the press knows that Kincaid let a future mass murderer off with nothing but a fine. Back then, he didn't look like he slept in a cardboard box. His mental state was never even brought up. The point is, he paid the fine and he never harassed the woman again. We don't owe anyone an apology. Good thing you're not writing the press release. Now on medication, Smith shows up at court clean-shaven, neat haircut, and a new suit asking to represent himself pro se. Before his mental illness took control, he graduated from law school... And he knows his shit. His motion to suppress is as thick as a phone book. Remember those kids? Phone books? <laughs> they were thick. When it gets rejected, though, he changes his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Claire is having a crisis of confidence. Schiff is not pleased with her original plea deal and wants her off the case. Also, Smith's surviving victim is going to sue her over the whole thing. Meantime, Smith's sister Patricia tells Claire... He goes on and off his meds, and he thinks he's a biblical warrior protecting himself from a murderous woman. Just like me. <laughs> she asks Claire why she didn't return her call after the previous arrest. Patricia says she wasn't going to ask for leniency. She was going to ask that he get sent to the hospital. In court, Smith is masterful at arguing the psychotic man he had been wasn't aware of his actions, and that no one... Not even Miss Kincaid could have predicted his future violence. Objection withdrawn. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling that he's going to walk back onto the streets, McCoy offers a plea deal of hospitalization and mandatory medication. Smith declines, but his sister's testimony begging for his hospitalization breaks his spirit. He takes the deal, but when he returns to court for his allocution, Smith is no longer calm and collected. He stopped taking his pills after his sister's testimony, and slips into a sad, psychotic breakdown before being taken away. Okay, guys, 456 Law & Order episodes. IMDB ranks this as the third best episode in the entire series. Uh, number one is Aftershock, which is two episodes after this one. That's the one no, where Claire dies no, in a car accident. I agree. That's a sucky pick. That's a sucky... Well... I'm just going by how many stars everybody You're gives. You're saying what IMD says. I'm IMDb saying what IMDB says. says. Right, right, right. What and was number two in IMDB? I don't recall. <laughs> I don't recall. It wasn't It wasn't one of these. Uh, by the way, we did when we did our These Are Your Stories contest where we had a listener 
uh, win the try to win the chance to come on as a guest, and that just means Charlie. We don't beg everybody <laughs> to come on. Some, Some people, people actually want to yeah, come on. They, they compete. Yeah, they mentioned this episode pro se uh, an awful lot, and so it was really surprised, and that's why I wanted to look back at it. First of all, it's extraordinarily well acted. Yes. Who plays the judge, Judge Rivera? Oh, he's so great. He's really good. Yeah, I'm story. trying to remember that actor's name. He was just in, uh, well, he was in Prince of Darkness, your other favorite, one of your other favorite episodes. He was yeah. the travel agent's partner. Huh. The one who ends up getting his throat slit at the end. Everyone ends up getting Which is like everybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is also a really heartbreaking episode. Oh, my God, yes. I. I... Well, that's just it. He, he's obviously... Incredibly moved by what happens in court. The right judge, at the yeah, end. the judge cries, man. And this court is adjourned. We never see that. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. even Judith Light doesn't cry yeah. when she's behind yes. that <laughs> that lectern. Well, we do get some great Claire Kincaid moments. She has this great fight with Schiff. A trial is an absolute waste. Three people are dead, and you're counting pennies. I can count bodies as well as pennies. You're not using this office to make up for your mistake. My mistake was following your lead, Mr. Schiff. I cut a deal the way you like them. Quick, cheap, and out the door. We're off this case as of now. Adam. She can do other cases. She can take a cruise. She can plant a garden. I couldn't care less. Adam. I don't want to hear it. She didn't deserve that. Tough. Plead Smith out. He says she can go plant a garden. I think that's some low voltage sexism right there. You think that's low voltage sexism? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> it was ridiculous the amount of sexism that she was subjected to in this episode. Also, I have a question for Charlie. Uh-huh. Kevin doesn't agree with me. I I've always wondered why Claire Kincaid is pretty much the only character in this whole universe that has a New York accent. Kevin says he can't hear it. Can you hear it? Uh to an extent, yeah. Little bit, uh, yeah. Yeah. Lenny does too. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, which is really odd, considering that Jill Hennessy's Canadian. Is <laughs> <laughs> now doing a great Boston accent on City on a Hill. Yeah, well, she's committed to the bit, as we would say. <laughs> but this actually speaks to her whole character arc, this idea that she has become disillusioned with the system that she's part of. And she is about to quit when she dies Two episodes later in that car accident. Don't boo me. I didn't write the fucking thing. And that that was where we find out that, like, her law professor has married her mother. Yeah. Which is very bizarre. Mm. Well, she's I guess she's used to inappropriate relationships. (laughs) When you look at this secret uh, love affair she's been having with McCoy. But this episode shows no indication. So. So, Charlie, when we started this podcast, I thought the whole Jack McCoy, Claire Kincaid thing was something that some people believed but wasn't necessarily true. Because if you don't know it, you see almost no evidence of it, except especially in this episode. There's like no, you know, there's no. Well, there's no indication in this. Yeah. Well, I disagree. I think Jack acts like a really protective boyfriend. Miss Kincaid's intelligent. She couldn't predict my behavior. She didn't think I was dangerous. She let me off with a fine. Why should I be held to a higher standard than she? Objection. Withdrawn. That's not good enough. Your Honor, I want you to instruct the jury. Denied. There is some bowling ball to the head hints. Yes. Yeah. Elsewhere. Yes. I mean. Well, once you know it, you see it everywhere. <laughs> she knows what kind of motorcycle he drives. His The woman who... Used to be Jack's lover, but framed the guy mm-hmm. uh, for, being, for being a murderer. Assumes that she's sleeping with him. You know, there's that whole thing. 
uh, at the end when Jamie Ross is there and she sets Jack up on, and after the date, he, she says... Uh, she said you mentioned Claire Kincaid. Because Madeline's brother spent three months in the hospital thanks to a drunk driver. I was not obsessing. And Jack says, I wasn't obsessing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, you know... He was obsessing, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he was obsessing, yes. So Smith meets with Olivet. And by the way, Rebecca, I have a new... Olivet theme song. Yay! Olivet, ah, gentle Olivet, ah, Olivet, ah, who's there not today? So this is really the essence of O'Hare's performance, and it explains this character why an intelligent patient might choose to go off his meds. I'm using every ounce of energy I have right now just to talk to you. I feel like I'm pawing through a wool blanket. I feel stiff and half a step behind everyone. Takes so much effort. I get so damn tired just holding on to reality. Letting go? It's almost a relief. So I'm wondering, guys, is this the emotional turning point here? Because I feel like we need to understand James Smith before we can feel for him. I think that's fair to say. He talks about what it feels like to be on antipsychotics. Like he's wrapped in a in, in a wool blanket, I think he says. He said it's taking every bit of energy I have just to sit up. I mean, the fact that this show we see a brutal crime scene. Yeah, we see a living victim that is brutally injured, and they show her over and mm-hmm. over and over again, and that she can't speak. And the one thing also, the show has an actual realistic timeline, which I like. But uh, he committed these horrible crimes, and we feel nothing but sympathy for him from this moment on even though we see the woman with the slashed eye and we see all the dead people. It really is a very well-written turn, I think, which is yeah. unusual for, yeah. for this caliber show to right. be this well-written. Oh, yeah. And by the way, one of the things you know that O'Hare is doing is he, ha- he is indicating his psychosis very subtly, but, but very powerfully with just... Quick blink, mm. where it's like he he's not overselling it. Mm-hmm. He's not twitchy and like drooling and and just like playing like he's chewing the furniture. I think the fact that it's so subtle is what makes it so powerful. I agree. And at the end, while he's having his breakdown, he recognizes mm-hmm. his sister. Oh, you're looking at me. I made them do that. <laughs> Pancakes, Mr. Lowe, please. My- you look like a lion. Don't do that, or I have to leave. Mr. Smith, sit down. Mr. Oh, Lowe. wait, wait. They took my armor. I need my armor. I absolutely can't wear this. Mr. Smith, no. deal with your Listen armor to me. when we're done. And that's an incredibly powerful moment. And Ann Dowd is crying. Yeah. Because that's what that's Ann Dowd does. <laughs> well, let's talk about those two performances, because there are two... Fantastic courtroom scenes. The first is Anne Dowd giving her testimony. She explains her concern for her brother with an anecdote about him secretly renting a 14th floor apartment. He said he didn't belong anywhere. He was afraid of what would happen to him when our parents died. He rented the apartment so he could jump off the balcony. The great thing is that not only is she acting, you know, to the hilt, we see Smith give up. Hmm. You know, even the the judge thinks, don't you want to object to that? And he's not. And he's just playing with his pen. And 
That's why it doesn't come out of nowhere in the final scene that he hasn't been taking his meds. Yeah, and his face just falls like in slow motion. It's yeah. really, I yeah. mean, if anybody listening to this, a lot of people who listen to our show, I know, haven't seen the episode or don't watch it before they listen. This is one to look for and watch. It is, it's like so much better than what you might be used to if mm-hmm. you watch Law and Order as your hotel show. And that moment is really like, I think, the peak of the whole thing. Yeah, and 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 it has Stephen Hill. <laughs> right. It's, uh... And being peak Stephen Hill. Uh, peak. Generally one of one of my prerequisites for for a great law and order episode. Yes. And he's a as much as I like the idea of having Jack as the DA, which I think saved the last the last couple of years of the show, because they brought in Linus Roach, who I thought was terrific. Uh-huh. I just, you know, the rest of the DAs, my God, Diane Weist. J. Fred Thompson. Ugh. Oh, please stop. <laughs> and we get a classic, make a deal. Yeah, he's pissed in this episode. Oh, he and, just, oh yeah. And he's so mean to Claire. <laughs> so unbelievably mean. I bet he felt guilty afterwards, after like two episodes later and she's dead. Oh, <laughs> I told her to go plant a garden. <laughs> now she's in one. <laughs> well, the emotional climax, guys, is Smith's allocution. Like we, we've been building towards this. And he goes from this awkward reading of his statement. A man came toward me and I became afraid and I stabbed him with a bayonet I had with me. Then I... This paper's full of needles. They cut me and I bleed. Do you hear those chariots? They stole them from me. They, They want me to sleep. And even McCoy and the judge expressed this merciful kindness to just stop the spectacle. We yeah. see this coming a mile away, but it is so much better than we expect. Yeah, I like that Jack is the one who calls the mercy rule. By the way, it's got, okay. <laughs> it, it felt like you're, you know, it really felt like. But he did let him already go scored on. ten runs. Okay, we can come off the field now. Yes, he, he did let him go on though. You know, <laughs> I was like Jack, you could have said that like a minute earlier, maybe a little kinder. Uh, but yeah, no, it was definitely really something to watch. And I like, I like the fact that we find out uh, during the runout that he's written this brilliant summation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Jack says he could have hung the jury. It's so neat that he mails Jack the summation, you know, from whatever hospital he's in. And uh, and then Jack, it's really neat that Jack read it. Yeah, it was probably as thick as a phone book. Yeah. I mean, Claire wouldn't even return the lady's phone call. That's Jack, right. Jack took plenty of time. I'm going to read this whole thing. <laughs> I want to see how bad I was going to lose. <laughs> One of the things that I loved about his character is that he actually, he like he's always just wanted to be able to play a lawyer. Like, he knows he can do it, and right. this is his chance. And it's so crazy and ironic and sad that the way he got that chance was by killing three people and maiming another but that's i mean it's also it's it's really speaks to i think the nature of you know that mental illness in particular uh which i'm a little bit familiar with for reasons i won't go into that there is this thread of like what could have been a lot of the time and that regret and i just think it's it's just so beautifully done and uh the summation part is is like the cherry on that on that cake so we see Dennis O'Hare come back uh, in the following season to be Phil Christie, who is this militia leader. And I keep thinking, Whoa. there's nobody I would rather see cast as the guy who's going to represent himself and do a whole trial than Dennis O'Hare. He did such a good job here. And then to be sort of the underdog, where again, he's a crazy militia guy. But in that episode, you're kind of like... Yeah, the system is stacked against him there, too. <laughs> yeah. And you've already thrown out all my co-defendants. Now you want to throw out the jury, too? I mean, it's not enough. You have the whole power of government behind you. You also have to rig the verdict. You entered the courtroom with the presumption of innocence just like anyone else. The rights that I am fighting to protect 
are your rights, too. I can defend my own rights, Mr. Christie. Well, in that one, I mean, Jamie Ross is actually struck by how many, like, contributions to their defense fund they got. Yep. (laughs) Not timely at all, right? Not timely at all. That's right. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. Inspiration for some of this episode comes from the case of David Riggins. In 1987, Riggins was arrested for murdering a Las Vegas man in the victim's apartment. While in jail, Riggins complained to a psychiatrist about hearing voices, so he was given antipsychotic drugs. A three-judge panel ruled the tranquilizers had worked, and Riggins was therefore competent to stand trial. Riggins then moved to stop his forced medication. He argued it violated his freedom, and because he was presenting an insanity defense, he wanted the jury to see his true mental state. The medication continued, Riggins was tried, found guilty of murder, and sentenced to death. After a series of appeals, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1992 ruled 7-2 in Riggins' favor and reversed the conviction. It said the forced medications violated his 6th and 14th Amendment rights. The landmark ruling did not, however, abolish the practice of medicating defendants so they can face trial. Instead, it mandated the state to justify the treatment as medically appropriate if less intrusive means are not available. In 1996, David Riggins took a plea bargain and is currently serving a life sentence at the Northern Nevada Correctional Center. Okay, guys, legal arguments aside, because I'm not a lawyer, how do you feel about this moral catch-22? You're insane, you have some protections, let's give you medication so we can make you sane enough to get a conviction. Uh, I think it's bullshit, Kevin. Bullshit, okay. (laughs) Charlie Pierce, are you on the bullshit channel as well? I'm I'm with Rebecca. I think forced medication for any particular reason is... is actually contrary, you know, contrary to the 6th and 14th Amendment. I, I think the Supreme Court was right. And I mean, I'm sure that what the prosecutor would say is you're not medicating him so you can get a conviction. You're medicating, medicating him so he can stand trial that's right. and contribute to his own defense. This, of course, would be bullshit from the prosecutors, but that's what they'd say. That's right. And there is something to it. If the state in which he committed the crime was his unmedicated state, the jury should be able to see it. That's actually evidentiary, like in, in nature, right? Yeah, well, Justice Kennedy had this this concurring opinion where he went f- further, and he said, right, he believed it violated due process for the state to involuntarily administer drugs in any way, just to make the person competent to stand trial. But he did point out that the defendant's demeanor, his facial expressions, the way he sits and pays attention is part of the adversarial system. And so the jurors or the judge should be able to see that and take that into consideration. It seems like, on one hand, he might want to be twitchy and whatnot in order to make a, uh, you know, the case that he's not fit to, you know, he's he's not legally responsible and sane. Or you're right, he may want to be at his best so that he can contribute to his defense. It seems like it ought to be his 
choice. Well, you know what else is part of the adversarial system is putting a severely mentally ill person on trial for a crime that they probably were not able to control or, or keep from committing in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's gross. I just think it's super gross. Yeah. But in this episode, they give him a chance to take a plea of, of insanity, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he's doing so well that he <laughs> he was he wasn't expecting the power of Aunt Lydia to come in and <laughs> take him down. <laughs> Guys, Riggins has been in prison for about 25 years now. Uh, I'm unsure of what kind of treatment he's getting, you know, the level of, of that, whether he's just in a cell or where they're giving him some psychiatric help. But the State Corrections Department of Nevada has a website on which you can search for an inmate, find out where they are, get their mailing address. Uh, this website uses the Comic Sans font. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> oh, thing in Comic Sans. I don't think um, it conveys the gravitas, Charlie, that they were thinking it would. <laughs> that's 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 the that's the twist at the end of tonight's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Comic Sans, make a deal. Nothing says prison system like the typeface used by Blondie and Dagwood. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us. want to thank our guest, Charlie Pierce. Hey, Charlie, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate Such it. Such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for badgering me. Thanks again, Charlie. By the way, you can follow him on Twitter at Charles P. Pierce. Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? On Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod, or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Chris Green. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy, Lily Flynn Handles Promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are the Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.